Hello and welcome to the Mage, the Hero Described podcast. No intro song, no overproduced intro, nothing to wait through, just talking Mage and related Matt Wagner stuff. Now, this show is for fans and readers of Matt Wagner's Mage comic series. I'm your host, Kevin Hawkins, and in this episode, I'll be reviewing issue number six of Mage 3, The Hero Denied. Before I get into the issue, a spoiler warning, if you haven't read this issue or any of the past Mage comic series, I promise I'm going to spoil this issue and parts of past issues from the Hero Discovered and Hero Defined completely and totally. Okay, so, it's late, I'm tired, but I just want to get this episode out and live before we get too close to issue number seven coming out, so if I sound a little monotone or low energy or if this hasn't been sound edited to the nth degree, that's why. Now, onto the issue. Now, in this issue, we pick up right where we left off from the last issue. Kevin and Joe Fat have followed the scent of a nasty, only to find a questing beast. Kevin tells Joe that these are rare, like unicorn rare, and they appear to people on a mystical odyssey. They're like a guide, a beacon. But Kevin gets cut off, and the beast spins in this crazy tornado and just zooms away. Joe could easily catch up with this thing to see where it's headed. He even says that it doesn't run as fast as he runs. And Kevin urges Joe to follow the questing beast. Kind of a callback to Kevin's habit of you know, telling other heroes what they should do, usually to further his personal agenda. You know, granted, it's it's part of the bigger battle, but um, you know, this this it it's not it's not unlike Kev. I mean, I get it. This is a rare and meaningful nasty, and Kevin is starved for direction. He is convinced that this might show him his direction, and maybe even help lead him to the Fisher King. But Joe isn't into it. In one frame, you can even see him physically recoil from Kevin as he reaches out to Joe. He lets Kevin know that he just came here to tell him about Kirby Hero, that Kirby Hero died. He's out of the hunting nasties game. And even though it might take a few minutes for him to track the beast, Joe refuses. And even while Kevin is in mid-plea, Joe basically just says, Sorry, dude and zips off. And this is an interesting contrast to the hero defined. Kevin says about this, same old Joe. But frankly, I seem to recall Joe readily following Kevin's lead, going from location to location and throughout his quest. Granted, all of those heroes were called to Montreal during Hero Defined. But with the exception of when Joe headed off with Kirby at the hand of... uh, at the end of Hero Defined, I really don't recall Joe ever bailing on Kevin. He pretty much followed him and was willing to go along with whatever Kevin was doing. And, I mean, to be fair, Kevin had just freaking hit Joe when he decided to join Kirby and, and decided to go off in another direction. You know, uh, by and large, same old Kev, just asking Joe to go and you know, help him on his quest uh, without really 
bothering to find out, you know, what, what Joe feels about it. Again, again, I get it. It's a few minutes. It's not like he's asking for a lot of time. But I think Joe's been down this path before. You know, one request from the Pendragon could lead to another request, and pretty soon his quest has become your quest. Kevin looks around, and he finds a spiral marking left on the ground by the questing beast, and he wipes up some of the stinky residue with a tissue or something. I mean, it just stinks, and it's already late at this point. Kevin goes wandering a bit, hoping to catch a glimpse of the beast, and Brennan Wagner's colors really do a nice job of giving us a nighttime scene without getting so dark as to be, you know, monotone or drab. And Kevin makes his way home finally, and back into a silent house very late at night. And the artworks are really cool on this. You can you can see Kevin trying to be quiet, uh, coming in knowing he's amazingly late. And in fact, Magda's still up, and she informs him, you know, she's worried. She informs him that it's two in the morning. And she also mentions that Kevin totally spaced on getting the kids from the bus when they arrived home. I mean, totally preoccupied. He'd left his cell phone at home, completely forgot about his kids. Again, I get seeing Joe was unexpected and derailed his afternoon and then the questing beast, but man, that's just, that's just bad. That's not, that's not small potatoes. So Kevin and Magda go into the kitchen where Magda puts up a silent spell to make sure they don't wake the kids. And it's really cool the way that just the entire room turns purple and you get this this good sense of the of the silent spell uh pervading the entire the entire space and we have a bit of a showdown here again magda's concerned that kevin's getting involved in anything heroic drawing excalibur so forth is going to put them at risk of discovery but kevin's frustration boils up here saying he's trying to do his best to fit in with this scenario of staying around the house. And, you know, before I get into, into what happens here, that's just, it just strikes me as interesting also that he, he's saying that he's trying to do his best to fit in, but, I mean, that is kind of part of his role. It's, he, he shouldn't be trying to fit into his house. And this, we're gonna, this kind of gets to a, to a key issue that's going on with Kevin right now. Anyways, while this is going on, he steps on one of Miranda's patterns. And at this point, the argument gets sidetracked in the kind of way that only a really good couple's argument ever can uh, get sidetracked into something that might be slightly related to what's going on, but, but isn't really. And Magda reveals that she's been helping Miranda discover her magical, her witch skills. Now, Kevin is already on the defensive in a way, so so far. So he takes the opportunity to kind of go on the attack for a moment, trying to call Magda out that this is somehow similarly, you know, something that could put them at risk, like uh, him using Excalibur could put them at risk. But Mags just cuts him right off. And she has this great bit about the way witches use magic. They can coax it into form. They can use it. And that's in, in contrast to Kevin's wild magic just surging inside of him, or a mage who can just pluck raw magic from thin air. And then she makes the comment that a lot of readers have been curious about in a way, kind of hinting at the question of just what does Kevin do for a living? And after saying that no one's going to notice one more witch at her craft, she says, 
Perhaps Kevin should find a craft of his own and not rely on his little green card so much. And, you know, this goes... This goes right to the heart of all sorts of issues of self-identity and work. Kevin is back on the defensive, saying he hasn't had a real job since he was 22, no resume, no professional skills. Being the Pendragon, being a hero, is all he knows how to do. But Magda counters that he knows how to be a great husband and father. And not wanting to argue anymore, she acknowledges his frustration gives him a kiss, and goes up to bed. And she goes up without Kevin, who says he'll be up in a bit. And there's a lot of domestic strife going on here. Uh, not, you know, not lifetime movie-style over-the-top domestic strife, but real-world sand-in-the-Vaseline kind of shit. And especially with the last year of being on the lam, unable to use his powers, unable in many ways to be himself a hero without putting his family at risk, well, Kevin is just chafing at the constraint of this situation. All in all, it is frustrating for all involved, and you can really see it in their body language. Kevin leaning back with his crossed arms as this whole scene starts, literally closing himself off and pulling away, and his facial expressions through this whole argument goes from closed to outright angry-looking. Even when Magda comes in to kiss his cheek, you can still tell he's he's still annoyed. And similarly, Magda's expressions of concern when Kevin comes home, when she's talking about working with Miranda, and the panel when she says she doesn't want to argue anymore, the line art is really on point. And again, the purple coloring throughout the scene really makes it stand out. It's not a fun scene to read in some ways, but boy, it really captured the dynamics of what a couple fighting or arguing feels like. And there's really a lot of stuff going on here just under the surface, not the least of which involves Kevin's sense of self-worth and identity as it's tied to, you know, doing or valuing one's work or, you know, following and honoring your true calling. He's really put a key component of his identity on the shelf by sheathing and not using Excalibur. And no matter all the rationalizations and honest-to-goodness real reasons to do this around family, safety, and so forth, the reasons why he has to put being a hero to the side, deep down it appears that he's not cool with it. Not really. Maybe in a way that isn't even conscious. And that discontent is starting to show in a variety of ways, like neglecting his more domestic responsibilities. He might be a great husband and dad, and he is a great husband and dad. We've seen that. But you can only push some things down for so long before they start to come up and surface in unexpected ways. So, um... Something uh, occurs to me just uh, as, a, as a note on the sideline about that little green card uh, when we take a look at timelines. In the last episode, I had mentioned that Joe Fat showing up uh, in uh, the last episode occurs roughly around April of 2000. So that would be just around the time 
that Mage the Hero defined was wrapping up publication. I don't have a calendar, a publication date calendar in front of me right now. But I think in a way what we've seen when Kevin draws Excalibur for the first time in a long time and he goes on the road to battle nasties, again, not to be too precise about it or too fine of a point on it, if we allow for the time that he wasn't able to draw Excalibur because the bat was destroyed and then we've got all these other reasons he's kept it under guard, and it's about 10 years after that now, it looks like that whole road trip uh, coincides with Matt writing The Hero Defined. Uh, a great reason, and that, and that would work out really nicely with the climax facing off against Eresh Kagao, who is naming him the Sumerian, because that was the big reveal at the end of Hero Defined that Kevin has this other heroic avatar that he was manifesting and living through and a, you know, basically another identity that of baggage that he carries with him. So in a way, I'm looking at the timeline on this and thinking just, you know, in the non-precise kind of way that some things seem to show themselves and mirror Matt's life in the mage world, I I kind of get the feeling that drawing the uh, drawing Excalibur and going on those battles equals out to that activity, which means that around this time, with um, around 2000, um, spring of 2000, this seems to be around the time when Matt was starting to republish, um, gosh, one of the uh, one of the arcs, Christine Spar's arcs from Grendel. And I, I gotta say, I wonder how that might manifest itself, or if it manifests itself in any way, shape, or form in the remainder of this series. Anyways, this is as good a time as any to check in on the Umbra Sprite and the Grackolthorns. Uh, returning from its rest, the Umbra Sprite is preparing to meet the lame Fisher King candidates that the Grackolthorns have gathered through their mission. And Carol and Sophia accompany the Umbra Sprite. Sophia continues with her dance moves in the background, and they enter a tall red room. No ceiling showing, no floor apparent, and they're on a plank. This is similar, if not identical, to the warped spaces found inside the Styx Hotel and Casino in The Hero Discovered, where various confrontations had taken place. And it's really neat also color-wise here to go from the predominantly purple scenes in the matchstick slash hunter household kitchen to this bright red that we've constantly seen uh, with the uh, with the villains in this series, whether it was the original sticks, whether it was Emil um, and his garments, as I recall, or or now in the uh, in the Archeron headquarters. So nine cages are hanging above the uh, above the villains and we're informed that the prisoners have had their have had their tongues removed that's why they're so docile the umbra sprite asks for its handbag and we discover that it contains a huge swarm of uh, and and I have no idea how to pronounce this I should look it up but sloa shi and according to a website named appropriately sloa shi.com 
In Irish and Scottish folktale, the sloshy, also known as the fairy host, are considered to be a manifestation of the wild hunt. The slaw contain the unrestful spirits of the dead and are considered by many to be troublesome and destructive. The word slaw refers to a host, or perhaps a more applicable translation would be army. And they are said to, uh, to travel or fly through the air at night and are known to kidnap mortals with them on their journeys. The slaw are considered to be the most fierce and terrifying of the fairy peoples. Now, in this case, the ravenous fairies, this, this interpretation of Wagner's, will help identify the Fisher King by avoiding him or her. So the Fisher King's virtue will repel them if uh, the Fisher King is in any one of these cages. And we see these flying piranhas go at the prisoners in their cages and attack them until they are all, in very short order, stripped clean, eaten, until only their skeletons remain. This At this point, Sophia provides the continuing comic relief here with a jeering taunt at the prisoners about losing their tongues and later striking this gleeful pose uh, at as the bottoms of the cages open up, releasing this shower of skeletal remains, bones, skulls, you name it. And the Umbra Sprite, very displeased, strides off proclaiming that if the mission continues not to produce the Fisher King, more extreme measures, efforts must be undertaken. We pick back up with Kevin on an old-school, gem-colored top Macintosh, searching fruitlessly in police reports, chat rooms, and bulletin boards for some kind of unusual reports that might help him locate the questing beast. Now, Magda drops in on her way out to remind him that there's a charity event that evening at the school. She asks him to wear something nice since it's kind of fancy. She's Her, her tone, her demeanor, especially in the wake of the night before, is very, you know, making nice, playing nice. Everybody's trying to be civil, you know, in the aftermath of this somewhat tense, tense showdown that they had. And Kevin acknowledges her request, but he is clearly distracted. And once she's gone, he picks up the phone and calls someone whose services he needs. And he goes and visits the amazingly named Heavy Jefferson's Magical This and That. A, um, well, a magical supply shop that bears a striking resemblance to a certain Greenwich Village Sanctum Sanctorum. Heavy Jefferson is a cool-looking cat with this bushy, unruly beard. He's got a flannel-looking shirt and is wearing what looks like a knit Rasta cap. Going back to Mage's roots as a street-level interpretation of a superhero tale, Hev is a street-level magician, alchemist, whatever. His vibe fits in with those other you know, non-mage, non-hero magical types like Isis, Magda, Trish, without being at the same, you know, level of wild magic mage that Magda refers to earlier in the issue. And this is neat because it, it really fleshes out this sense that Kevin lives in this world where, you know, sure, his wife is a witch, but there's almost this underbelly, this whole other world of magic that's going on right next door, right alongside us, could be your neighbor, and you'd have no idea. Kev comes referred to uh, Hev by way of Isis. 
and here we can see that Kev is really operating on his own agenda. Even Heavy Jefferson says that, you know, if Kev's related to the Hunter sisters, Magda and Trish and Isis, he's not sure why Kevin would need his services. Clearly, Kevin can't go to Magda for this, or either of her sisters. So he's really kind of taking some shady action here behind her back. And, or as Kev says, it's complicated. Kevin provides Hev with some of that residual spore that he gathered on the napkin, and Heavy Jefferson uses it to make some magical eye drops that will allow Kevin to track the questing beast. And true enough to the name of his shop, we get all magical Mr. Wizard with a mini brazier, a test tube, stirring rod, eyedropper. It's magic. It's science. Even better, it's chemistry. And Kevin seems a little bit surprised when he's told to put a drop in each eye, and that after two to three hours, when it wears off, he can take another dose. And Hev tells Kevin that this help is on the house, that someday he might need help from the Pendragon in return, which sounds good in theory, but when you figure that Kevin can't really draw Excalibur, and a key part of the Pendragon's kind of help usually involves his power... This sounds like a risky agreement when you look at the big picture. Also, narratively speaking, this seems like the kind of open loop that's just waiting to be closed. So I wouldn't be surprised if we see Heavy come calling on Kevin to repay the favor at some point in the series. And it might be something that, I don't know, Kevin might not be ready, willing, or able to take care of. Who knows? Maybe not. As Kevin is leaving, Heavy lights a magic fairy leaf spleef, grown on the slopes of Mount Avalon, and he offers Kevin a hit. But Kevin takes a rain check and heads out on his own, heads out on his way. Now, back in Mage 2, Matt Wagner came under a lot of fire for the mystical vision scene with Kevin, Kirby, and Joe uh, share after smoking the magical doobie rolled by Isis. He called it an update on the use of magical potions, etc. But, you know, this scene seems to be even more on point with psychedelic influences. First of all, the location. This is a Hep Magic Emporium modeled after Doctor Strange's Sanctum Sanctorum. Now, Doctor Strange as a book was always closely linked with psychedelia, LSD, and the counterculture. Now, that might not have been the intention of Steve Ditko, whose artistic groundwork still resonates in the Doctor Strange comics, universe, movie, you know, all of his comic adventures. But intentional or not, you scratch the surface of the psychedelic counterculture, and Doctor Strange is there. In the Electric Kool-Aid Acid Test, Tom Wolf writes about Ken Kesey on board the LSD-laden magic bus, sitting, quote, for hours on end reading comic books, absorbed in the plunging purple Steve Ditko shadows of Doctor Strange. And it wasn't uncommon for Fillmore West concert posters to feature the Sorcerer Supreme, and even Pink Floyd's 1967 album Saucer Full of Secrets has an only partially hidden figure of Doctor Strange on the right side of the album cover. But it really took off in the 70s under the creative team of artist Frank Bruner and Steve Englehart, who would, among other experimental activities, drop LSD together at a monthly dinner meeting and discuss Doctor Strange plots. 
None of this is necessarily news, and it really is just the tip of the Doctor Strange iceberg, which, frankly, it gets even deeper and weirder with occult influences and esoterica. Uh, most of the information that I just discussed is excellently covered in Big Mouth Mag's article, Strange Ways, Here We Come, Marvel's Doctor Strange and His Psychedelic Secrets. I'll, I'll provide a link uh, to this in the podcast, in the notes on the podcast for this episode. Anyway, we have the Doctor Strange setting. We have the drops Kevin is given to put into his eyes to give him visions, and that's referred to as taking a dose. Now, certainly there are medical doses, but dose is also a common vernacular for someone taking acid, would be to take a dose or you know, drop acid, which, among other ways and means, can be taken as a liquid and dropped into the eye and open up the doors of perception, as it were, to things not otherwise seen. And then, of course, there's the humongous fairy leaf joint. I mean, heavy Jefferson's magical this and that is, you know, it's a magical place, but it's also kind of a wild headshot. Um, magical this and that's aside, it's sweet getting to see the world enlarge a bit here. So far, with very few exceptions, the cast in this series has been a little limited. I suppose it's not that much unlike Hero Discovered, but in issue six in that series, you know, we had really only just brought the good guys team together. That's just four of them. And maybe it feels different here because on the hero side of the equation, Hugo and Miranda are there, but they feel a little bit like tagalongs. They're the kids. They're not the central characters moving the narrative forward, per se. And as the adult characters go, it's pretty much been Kevin and Magda doing the heavy lifting, periodically interrupted by moments of violence and battle. Seeing Joe Fat, and now this heavy Jefferson, really helps relieve the somewhat claustrophobic feeling of these two characters carrying so much narrative action on their backs. At this point, we cut to a scene of Kevin back in the alley where he and Joe spotted the questing beast, and you can't help but notice that the panels are dominated by the purple twilight tones that Brendan Wagner uses so well to indicate nighttime scenes. Lights are on in windows. A full day has gone by. Kevin is casting after this beast. He is obsessed with it, and once again, his other responsibilities have completely slipped his mind. But we'll get to that later. Kevin takes out the drops, and despite his skepticism, he's concerned that this questing beast might be his only chance to find the Fisher King. He opens the eye drops and gets ready to use them, which is as fine a time as any to cut to the Sunset Primary School, where a clearly annoyed Magda is alone at a charity auction in the little black dress we see her wearing on the cover of this issue. A co-worker comes up and they discuss Kevin's tardiness and his <laughs> unwavering dedication to always wearing the same t-shirt. Magda excuses herself to go call Kevin, and as she leaves a message for Kevin, we see a man following her in the background. From a hallway in the school, to a side door where she sends a magical green butterfly to locate her missing husband. You know, she's clearly bothered, but she's also concerned. The worry on her face is obvious as she lets loose the butterfly to find Kevin. And as she goes back toward the party, sighing about her incredible, lovable, frustrating man, 
we, sur we, we, we see this uh, dark-haired pursuer following her in the shadows. Kevin, meanwhile, drops the mystical quest-enabling acid drops into his eyes, and much to his surprise, it works. His eyes are glowing this bright yellow, and it is a cool look. But besides being cool, it lets him see the beast's trail. And looking from above, like a kid racing across a field of stars, Kevin goes running excitedly after the trail of the questing beast. Much like the heroes of old, who pursued this beast, he is truly obsessed. Nothing else occurs to him, like his wife, who waits for him, alone, at the charity auction, stopped by someone who looks like he has a charter member subscription to Super Creeps Quarterly. Now, Magda is thinking out loud how Kevin better have a good non-magical explanation for this as Studmeister Creepy approaches, and in a textbook maneuver from Slee's Academy, he snaps her purse string, causing it to fall to the floor. And he picks it up, handing it to her, as Magda pointedly states that she's heading home to her husband. Upon which, Lex Lothario, Danny Date Rape, corners her against the wall, saying that it's a real shame because He's the school superintendent, and she is one fine little witch. You know, in this day and age of the Me Too movement, this kind of move might warrant a not-so-subtle legal threat or a kick to the balls. But storyline-wise, this is 2000. Times are a little bit different. Maybe they're a little more polite, uh, diplomatic, non-confrontational way to respond. Magda looks taken aback, wide-eyed, back literally to the wall as she takes in this not-so-subtle double-header power play, both flexing workplace authority and leering sexual harassment. But who knows how she'll respond to the next issue. I, I think we're not just going to see her take this without some kind of answer to put him in his place. And again, hey, I vote for a good swift kick. As a nice artistic touch... Keeping in line with the other issues, the artwork for the to-be-continued tagline in this issue is straight out of a handwriting workbook, complete with ruled lines and arrows in the letters. So, all in all, great issue. Can't wait to see what happens. Um, we're going to go into the letter column section, then after that the reviews where we'll touch back in on some of the things that really really make this issue and the series so far, in my estimation, sing. All right, so on to the letter column. This issue's incantations opens with a letter from Jason Nankaro, who shares his journey of coming to Mage via Matt's first Batman-Grendel crossover. He mentions even getting the Grendel mask, so I'm assuming that he means those super-rare Kamiko fabric masks. As I understand it, a run of only 500 masks were produced. So Jason's got himself a valuable bit of collectible there. No, no doubt uh, Joe Fat would be envious and possibly want that mystical object for his own collection. Jason spends some time detailing some of Matt Wagner's artistic styles through the years, the Devil by the Deed manga deco phase to the uh, Hero Defined, where he refers to cartooning that, quote, may look simple, but every line counts and everything is discernible. He also gives props to Brandon for his coloring. And in his reply, Matt mentions 
The one thing he's proudest of most throughout the Mage Saga is the evolution of his art style and storytelling, that each book of the trilogy reflect who he was during that stage of his journey, both narratively and visually. Furthermore, he recognizes the important role other artists have played in defining each book, from Sam Keith's inks in Hero Discovered, Jeremy Cox's colors, and Sean Knott's lettering in Hero Defined, and finally, working with his son Brennan Wagner and Dave Lanfear on Hero Denied. He's being a real mensch here, and Matt states that he's been incredibly lucky to work with talented creators who make him look good. Next, Peggy Trouth talks about the role Mage has played in inspiring her own crypto-autobiographical comic, and how seeing an aging Kevin Matchstick with a son of his own has reminded her that time is moving on, and maybe she should get a move on with her work that she's had on hold. She closes with a great sentiment, Female antagonists, hell yeah. Maggie is just one of many comic creators who've written into incantations, and I use that term purposefully. Whether they've been published or not, whether their first work is in progress or they've been self-publishing, professionally published, whatever. One thing I've noticed is that lots of people who write into Matt, or at least that have been showing up in the incantations column, are working on their own creative endeavor. And that's just awesome. Matt's reply reinforces the idea that, with projects like Peggy's, it's never too late to take that personal project off the back burner. Next, we have J.J. Smathers, who talks about his experience asking Matt at a Comic-Con post-hero defined if it would take another ten years to finish Mage. Matt assured him that it would not. And he was right. It took twenty. Now, I am sure that many Mage fans can relate to his feeling of elation upon learning that this third book in the trilogy was finally being written. And as the books came out, he shares that he decided to hold off on reading them. It sounds like he got and just held on to issues zero through three until he finally succumbed and read them all at once, like downing an entire huge ice cream sundae at one time. And now, wallowing in enjoyment, he's also experiencing the regret, the regret of having to wait for the next issue to find out what happens. And <laughs> I get it, but hey, I figured take a deep breath and chill. Uh, <laughs> and remember what it was like to wait for issue 15 of Hero Defined to come out. Um, just take it easy. Maybe reread each four-issue story arc during the break months that Matt mentioned are built into the publication schedule. Kyle Rao uh, wrote in with a word of appreciation for Jen Delari's email subject line, which identified the Grackle Thorns as their Spice Girl doppelgangers. He also mentions the diverse readers' mail on the letter pages, and asks if that makes mage fans majors. Kurt Jordan and uh, Keith Figurski both pointed out that the cover of issue number four had a layout similar to Grendel War Child number six, and I have not looked at War Child in a long time, so I had to go grab a uh, go go look online and take a look at this cover, and boy, it sure does. The mage cover is a bit closer in on the action, but Matt acknowledges that, you know, it wasn't on purpose, but maybe he just likes this layout. Now let's take a look at the reviews for this issue. Most of the reviews I read about this issue, well, all of the reviews that I read about this issue were favorable. You'll be able to find links to reviews on the podcast post and the blog. 
Chris Beveridge at the Fandom Post mentions how much he, quote, loves the back and forth that we get between Kevin and Magda about things because they, as much as they're in love, aren't fully engaging with each other and are leading separate lives to some degree. Seeing that play out here with small discovers and their reactions works really well. Now, he also points out how Kevin is in a difficult position by essentially having to hide and not having any real outlet here, but he's also just not engaging in what he does have. And, you know, Magda seems to allude to this with her comment about him being a great husband and father, an area where we see him slipping up in more as he gets distracted by the call of his heroic nature, or rather, the growing frustration of balancing his heroic calling and his domestic realities. So I think that's a, that's a really neat call he has there. He mentions, uh, Chris Beveridge mentions, that this makes Kevin a frustratingly human character in a lot of ways. And I think that's part of what Mage fans uh, enjoy so much about Kevin Matchstick. Across the series, he is a superhero who is relatably human and can be very, very frustrating at times. He's caught up in his shit, and he's just trying to work his way through it the best that he can. Justin Cooper at Comic Watch gives a pretty straightforward recap of the issue, but his closing thoughts are definitely worth checking out, mentioning how, at this point of the story, all support for Kevin, either from his friends or in his family, is falling apart. And at Two Guys, One Review, they similarly comment about how rocky things are for Kevin, and that it almost feels like Kevin could fail. Thus, they say, the hero denied, and his mission could possibly fall to his children to complete his legacy. They also mention that, quote, there is danger everywhere for Kevin and his family. It doesn't give me a good feeling. It really feels like something bad is in store for us all. Matthew Peterson at Major Spoilers talks about how this issue builds conflict from not only the magical world, but in Kevin's friendships and family relationships, and that he is seriously unnerved by it all. And really, between Matthew Peterson's review and Justin Cooper's review, I was finally able to put my finger on how this series has me feeling as I read it. I I feel like I'm on the edge of my seat in a tense thriller. With, you know, the notable exception of some showdowns here and there, this is a really tense, slowly paced story with almost a sense of building dread, impending doom hanging over Kevin and his family. Most of what's happening sometimes feels like it's in slow motion, building towards the inevitable conflict which could break out at any moment. But so far, so far it's just been like, you know, Kevin and family are in this precarious position and we're nerve-wrackingly waiting for the other shoe to drop, for the shit to hit the fan. And when's that going to happen? Your guess is as good as mine. Last of all, one of my favorite reviews. Check out episode number 12 of the podcast, Can I Thwip It? Where Eli and Manus discuss the issue, and Eli points out that the cover of the next issue, issue number 7, is a visual callback shout-out to the Grateful Dead, with its Skull and Roses style and you know, I noticed, hey, we get a bit of the lightning bolt on Kev's shirt, which deadheads should definitely be familiar with from the Steal Your Face skull. Now, I don't know if it's intentional or not, but 
Damn, it's a cool thing to notice. Anyway, their review of the issue is a lot of fun, so give it a listen. And that's it. That's this week's episode of Mage, the Hero Described Podcast. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to join me next time when I'll review issue number eight. Um, and actually have, uh, possibly have some, uh, surprise podcast episodes coming up in the, in the next month, hopefully. Again, if you have any comments or thoughts that you'd like to share, please visit magetheherodescribed.com. There you can find instructions about the many ways you can get in touch. You can also find past podcasts, links to reviews of Mage Comics, images and scenes mentioned in the podcast, and more. I will say this, sometimes creating the as-mentioned in the issues section can uh, be a bit tedious and time-consuming on the website. Uh, If you're looking for those and other random Mage-related visuals, uh, find us at Mage Hero Described on Instagram. Uh, At the website, you can even subscribe for updates and notices when a new podcast, gallery, or other content is published. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please share it through the usual social networks and especially rate it and review it on iTunes. It really helps other listeners discover the show. Thanks, and until next time, stay excellent.